When I was a child growing up in North London, we didn't talk about anti-Semitism. If it came up in conversation, it would likely have been in jest. Driving us around in our shabby Ford Popular, my father enjoyed declaring that the traffic lights, when they were red one after the other, were anti-Semitic. But that was it. My father's grandmother, Caroline Ellen, had been deported from where she'd sought refuge from Nazi Germany in Amsterdam, to Westerbork, and on to Sobibor, where she was murdered in 1943. Most of my mother's family had been murdered. And yet, 10 or 15 years later, anti-Semitism was about traffic lights. It was almost a joke. If Jews felt threatened by anti-Semitism in 1950s or 1960s Britain, we certainly weren't aware of it. The horror of the concentration and extermination camps, shown widely on newsreel footage in cinemas immediately after the war, had forced those with anti-Semitic views to think again, or at least hold their peace. The Holocaust was discussed very little when I was a child. I grew up surrounded by people with German accents, my mother included, though I couldn't hear it unless listening to her in later years on her voicemail message. Like my mother, I had many cousins, uncles, aunts and friends who fled Nazi Germany. But England, Britain, felt safe. We were proud to be British, proud to be Jewish, and we felt unthreatened. At school, where about a third of the class was Jewish, no fresh subject matter we hadn't looked at before was covered in lessons held on Jewish High Holy Days. There was no point. Too many of us were absent. In what was known as United Prayers, the once-a-week session where we all sang English hymns together, and I still adore them, we were careful to choose those that were suitable for all. Where there was uncertainty, the senior teachers would consult parents or Jewish staff members. People were sensitive, accepting, tolerant. We never thought it a problem. I will never know how much my sense of security was down to a deliberate ploy on the part of my parents to shield me and my cousins from what had happened. After all, my mother had lost out on her education. Though reparation negotiations with the German government were going on in the late 1950s and 60s, I heard little about it. My grandparents had left with virtually nothing, and seeking compensation for their house became an almost full-time obsession in the early 1960s. But as children, my cousins and I were innocents. We were safe. We were free to practice Judaism, free to walk around the streets in fancy dress at Purim, free to wear sparkly shoes at Hanukkah. We lit our Hanukkah candles and put them in the window, and nobody turned a hair. Much later on, when I experienced minute amounts of anti-Semitism, mostly born of ignorance, in my student years and beyond, when a few far-right activists were sending offensive cards to prominent Jews, it still felt less than serious. When the Runnymede Trust, a race relations equality organisation, decided to conduct an inquiry into the prevalence of anti-Semitism as a dry run for an inquiry into what then seemed much more serious, Islamophobia, we didn't think we would find much, or that it would be especially disturbing. Our 1994 report, entitled, presciently as it turned out, A Very Light Sleeper, covered early Holocaust denial and offensive letters and cards. It raised some pretty unpleasant examples and caused some alarm, but it didn't appear then as serious as the growing phenomenon of Islamophobia.